morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, we have the host of the Millennial Sales Podcast and a stellar AE over at Gong. It is the one and only Mr. Tom Alemo. Nick, why should people listen? One of my favorite parts about this episode actually came in the back half where we talked about unpacking objections and we actually did some live role play. We put Tom on the spot and he had the hardest prospect in the world to work with objection wise. He's stubborn. He's tough. He's not a good podcast host. Yes, it was Armand and Tom. So give that one a listen. This was a fun episode. Three, two, one. I'm not interested. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Did you know that 60% of proposals are viewed on a mobile device, which means if you're sending a tech stock or a slide deck, the formatting is going to look really ugly and you're going to make a bad impression. Luckily, our friends at Quiller are here to help. Quiller pages are built on the web, which means they're mobile responsive and they actually look good on a cell phone. And Quiller is having an offer right now to upgrade your proposal from an ugly tech stock to a Quiller page for free. So you can see what your boring proposal looks like as a beautiful Quiller page. There is a link in the show notes to take advantage of the offer. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. All right, Tom, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. All right, number one, dumb down your prospecting emails. You want to keep the subject line to two to three words. I often start with the word you or your, and you want to get past the mental filter of your prospect of what's an internal versus an external email. So a good internal-looking email might say something like, your pipeline, your forecast, something that's very punchy and might get someone to open the email. Something that is not going to pass that filter is something like, how to 10x your revenue in three easy steps. Very salesy. People are going to delete that. Second piece is, first line, you want to personalize it or tailor it. A quick two to three sentences on the challenges they have 
and how you can help them. And then an interest-based call to action with one ask. I hate when people make it to Chris Vossi of asking, would you be ridiculously opposed? Keep it simple. Down to chat. Down for a conversation. Are you open to a call? Cut out the stats. Cut out the links. And keep it simple on the prospecting emails. Beautiful. Tom, would you be ridiculously, horribly opposed to giving me tip number two? I would not be. Number two is Trojan horse prospecting. So you're going to open up Sales Navigator, create a few saved searches. One filter that I love is to go to see which companies are case studies for your org or testimonials and see people that used to work at that company that now work in your territory. The chances are that if they haven't used your product, they're at least familiar with it. They had a positive experience or you're going to be able to get references from them. And I use that as a Trojan horse to add them on LinkedIn with a short one to two sentence message, start the conversation, and it usually leads to a really warm introduction. Very nice. Round us out. What's number three, Tom? Number three is using Google Alerts for your top 10 accounts. So you want to get an inbound flow of reasons to engage with your prospects and customers so that when you pick up the phone, when you send your email, you have something relevant to say. If you go to Google Alerts and you type in your top 10 accounts, you can get a weekly roundup of emails of all the times that they've been mentioned in the news. So that's their product releases, their funding rounds, you know, new executives join the company, blog posts. And once you get that directly in, you'll have dozens and dozens of reasons to engage every single month. And you'll never run out of relevant things to say when you call them or email them to break through the noise. So Tom, give me a sense. Where do reps typically overcomplicate their prospecting emails? I feel like the two ways that reps overcomplicate it is in the subject line and in the call to action. So like I mentioned, the subject line should be two to three words. It's very brief. You don't need to sell someone on what the ROI is of whatever product or service you're selling is in the subject line. That never gets people to answer the email or open the email rather. A call to action should be just a handful of words. You should write like you talk. That should be the overall rule of thumb for how you're writing emails. You don't need to be too formal. You don't need to get too philosophical or Chris Vossi in that you say, hey, would you be down to have a conversation about how we can 10X your pipeline results, Armand? That's a 10-word sentence to ask. You should tell them how you can solve their problem in the body of the email. Take a space and a new line Just say, is that worth a conversation? Would you be open to a call? You're making the ask very clear and it's either a yes or no from there. Tom, I've used Gong before and I know there's like 832 different use cases and value drivers and you can't put all 832 in an email. Can you explain to me, how do you choose what problem prop or value prop you're gonna include? And maybe like an example of what a good Gong prospecting email might look like would be? So at Gong and for most sales reps, you might be sending emails to different types of personas and you might solve different challenges there. So for example, I send emails to CROs, I send emails to the head of RevOps, sales enablement. They're all gonna be either influencers or decision makers in a buying process. So let's stick with a CRO. That's the perfect prospect for me because they're gonna be the decision maker in most cases and, and have the highest business problem. And so what we wanna get into their head is you wanna personalize the first sentence to something that's going on either in their world or at their company, right? Maybe from the Google alert that you already sent up. And typically the way that I start the body of the email is typically the CROs that I talk to don't have visibility into you know what their pipeline looks like, what reps are saying on calls, 
or why their A performers are way outpacing, you know, the B and C players on their teams. If those are challenges that you have, we've solved that problem for 3,000 customers, similar to wherever you are, Nick. And, you know, if I do drop a company name, it's not just the biggest customers that we have. It's ones that are in the same industry, same size, maybe even in the same city or state. And then again, space it out and say, would you be open to a conversation? Is this worth a discussion? And I feel like if you have a good understanding of what the actual pain points are of most people that you're solving, and that's a common challenge, like there's no CRO out there that doesn't want visibility into their pipeline. There's no CRO that doesn't want to coach their reps to be better, to reduce the time to onboard new reps and get people the time to value. So if your product has those qualities that can solve a pain point that specifically, which hopefully it does, it should be a no-brainer for them to at least want to have a 15-minute conversation around it. So Tom, one of the things that you all have the advantage of at Gong is that you have so much content and data. However, I've heard conflicting opinions around, should I be using links, PDFs, statistics, bolds, bullet points, all that more structured numeric stuff in my emails. Do you have a perspective on how much you include that stuff in your emails versus just do a good old plain text email? I am more of the opinion to keep it simple and keep it in the plain text. I think it depends who you're reaching out to. If you're in the enterprise space and let's say you're trying to reach out to a 10,000 person company, they're more likely to have a spam filter they're more likely to have that process. And so if you have a bunch of links to case studies and things like that, or you have a video or a PDF, it might just get blocked. It might not even ever hit their inbox versus if you're reaching out to maybe a commercial or a bid market account where they might not be as structured. I think it's important to mix it up too. So typically early on in a cadence or in a sequence, it'll be plain text. But you know, on the third or fourth email, I might throw a PDF. I might throw a case study from a similar company. I might throw a vidyard in to try to mix it up. And, you know, I kind of think about it as like you're taking swings with an ax at a tree. And so you don't know which one's actually going to topple the tree over. So it's worth testing out different things and, and seeing what resonates with your buyers. You know, I think the last point is like what resonates with a CRO is not going to be the same thing that probably resonates with a CIO or a head of security or a CMO, right? So we're all selling to different people. And I think you got to get kind of inside their heads for what's going to resonate the most with them too. So let's say that you've sent some good emails and you start to get some responses. One thing that's tough is on cold calls, I feel like I can respond to those pretty well. If someone says, I'm not interested, but if someone replies over email with, I'm not interested or call me in six months or I'm on X competitor. I don't always know how to respond over email to objections. Do you have any tactics around that? Yeah. I mean, the first thought that I have is to not try to respond on email. If they have their phone number and their signature, you have their number from whatever contact provider you use. I would just pick up the phone and call them and say, Hey, Armand, you know, thanks for the email. It sounds like it's really busy over there. Let's say you said, call me or email me in six months and ask what's changing over the next six months and what's going on there. I always feel like it's easier to handle an objection, to talk about anything sensitive or a tough conversation over the phone. But let's say you call them, they don't answer, you can't get their number and, and you have to do it via email. It's tricky. In my experience, it's better to just try to pick up the phone. They don't respond. They clearly don't want to engage. It might just be better to move on and spend your time elsewhere within the account at another contact. Well, the worst thing you can do in that scenario is just throw your hands up and say, all right, they're using a competitor. Guess I'm giving up on this account in entirety. 
what you're doing, it's actually less about the specific verbiage of what you're saying in response. By virtue of picking up the phone and having a conversation with that person, you're going to get way more information than you ever possibly would trying to do this thing over email. And so it actually takes some guts to pick up the phone. But the thing is, if you pick up the phone on the objection and like you're already in a place when you get the objection where the answer is no, the Worst case scenario, picking up the phone and calling, the answer is still no, but at least you give yourself a tiny bit more probability of getting to a yes or a meeting or a, oh, you know what, I actually am interested. So a new VP lands in your patch, and let's say they haven't used Gong before, but you see account you're trying to go after, new VP. What does your messaging look like? Do you have a specific sequence that you put this person in? Are you sending them a one-off message? What's your approach to try to get a conversation with that person? Yeah, so let's just say that the account is completely cold. There's nothing else going on there. I would, first step, I would go on LinkedIn. I would add them, right? I would send them probably like a two-sentence message that, you know, connection request that would say, you know, hey, Nick, saw you just landed at PAVE. Congrats on the new gig. I'm working on, you know, the partnership between PAVE and Gong. Let me know if I could ever be helpful. There's no ask. There's no call to action. I'm not giving any specifics. You actually get a response more frequently than you would think to that, just kind of like kind message especially if your company has any sort of reputation in the market. And so I might get a response from Nick that says, hey, Tom, thanks for the note. Really appreciate it. I'll talk with you later. And at least that opens the door for conversation. You know that I exist. You know I'm a person. You know I work at Gong. And you're not banging down my door for a call, but at least opens up the dialogue. And so from there, whether you respond with that one sentence or, or maybe you just accept the request, you know, I think you can go about a regular prospecting cadence. So that's email. That's call. If you're active on LinkedIn, I'm going to make that part of the first 30 or so minutes of my day where I'm on sales nav and I'm doing some social listening. And so if you're posting something, if your company's posting something, I'm going to use that to kind of slow roll it. In the ideal case where you actually respond and we have a real dialogue going back and forth, and you say, hey, oh, you're in Chicago. Have you ever gone to Portillo's and had a hot dog? I mean, that's the lowest hanging fruit of all time where you can have a couple back and forth exchanges. I keep it pretty casual in my tone on LinkedIn. And then if you have, I'd say three or four back and forth, you can, you earn the right to ask for a call or to kind of state your intention around that. But otherwise that's typically the way that I would go about the prospecting effort. So Tom, you, you mentioned a couple of times, one way to re-engage an account if someone has rejected you or if it's a closed loss op is if you have a new champion at that company. But I'm curious, in your experience, I mean, everyone sort of knows Gong in the sales space. If you're a sales leader that doesn't know about Gong, then like, what are you doing? My guess is there's a point in these sales cycles where you say like, hey, so I, I met with your boss a while ago and he didn't want to buy us. How do you approach that conversation? Or in other words, when it's a closed loss opportunity that you're re-engaging from another angle, what do you do to make sure that you don't just end up in the exact same no that you ended up in before? Yeah, I think first step is you want to do your due diligence as a salesperson, right? To understand what actually happened. And so if that was you, you might remember what happened and, and you might know why there was a no. It's not the right time. They chose our competitor, whatever it may be. It could be just as likely that that no happened three years ago with a different rep before you were even at the company. So I think it's on you before you even have that discovery call to know what those reasons were and be as organized and familiar with that so that you don't lose credibility on that. But once you've done that, I find that the best way to do it is, is to be upfront, 
right? And let's say that Nick was the CRO that rejected me, you know, nine months ago, and, and Armand is my champion. And I've gotten Armand bought in. We've talked through, you know, the quantifiable business pain that he has. You know, he's engaged. He wants to go about selling this internally. Before Armand talks to Nick, I need to have a candid conversation with him and say, you know, something like, hey, Armand, we're developing a great business relationship here. I want to be as candid as I can. I talked to Nick nine months ago, and he wasn't interested in Gong because, you know, he said we were too expensive. I don't think I did a good enough job as a sales professional to really show him the value and what we're able to do. You know, it sounds like some things have changed on your end and, and on our end. Do you think he'd be open to that conversation? I think if what happens after that meeting is Armand goes to Nick and says, hey, I'm talking to Gong, that's just going to be a no. I think you need to do the homework to know what's changed on their side, see what's changed on, on your side. Maybe there's product innovation. Maybe you've changed your pricing. Maybe there's a new option that you have for customers. And I think you need to have that conversation with Nick and earn the right to be able to talk through that with him because most of the selling, especially at mid-market enterprise level, is done when you're not in the room, unfortunately. And so if you don't properly educate and coach your champion on how to have those conversations, then you're going to be dead in the water. This is so important because a lot of people, Tom, to your point, a lot of people avoid it and they try to sort of skate around it. And then what happens is your champion goes into a conversation blind with their CRO. And that CRO, the moment they're like, oh, you're looking at Gong? I already looked at it. Stop. And immediately your champion's like, oh, there must be something that I'm not seeing here. Versus if your champion goes to your CRO and says like, hey, I know you looked at Gong and I know you want to turn it down, but here's why I think you should take another look at it. You're arming your champion because to your point, whether or not you like it, that conversation is going to happen. And so you're way better off priming them into that conversation. Are there other ways that you are using either gong or videos or other things to properly prime or prep your champion or empower your champion to multi-thread for you internally? First off, what you just said, like you don't want to be fearful of uncomfortable conversations. And so at any point in the sales cycle, whether it's getting into price, whether it's your competitor, whether it's we said no to you 10 months ago, the more that you can lean into an uncomfortable conversation is the closer you're going to get to actually making a sale and hitting quota. But to answer your actual question, I think there's a few things that you can do. One, if you have a champion that's built up, part of what you want to do is have him or her sell to the CRO and get them involved. But the other part is like you want to get as much info from that champion as possible. If they see value in you, you should be on the same side in that you're both working together to get your product bought by their company. It's not you selling them, you're on the same side. And so if that's the case, you wanna get as much info as possible. So maybe you didn't make that sale because you didn't get to a deep enough level of pain or you didn't understand the buying process or you didn't understand that one of the VP's sister-in-law works at your main competitor and you know wanted to buy them instead. And so I think part of it is coaching them, but you also wanna get as much info, relevant info as possible from them. I think there's a lot you could do depending on what you're selling. Like we use mutual success plans. We use, depending on the situation, like an ROI calculator that we can work through with them. And so if we can get as much info around their ramp time or you know what their pipeline looks like or how they onboard new reps, we can plug those in and, and help kind of show at least at a high level, the business case for at least exploring it again. And so I think those are a few of the ways that I would go about doing that. 
Tom, can you tell me about what that ROI calculator conversation looks like? Because I've seen people do it really, really poorly where it's almost cheesy, and then I've seen it done really effectively. Let's say you're on a call with Armand, and he's like, I'm curious, like, what's the ROI of something like this? How do you respond in that situation? It's polarizing. You need to know the persona and the personality of who you're talking to, because there's some people that are going to see that and say, this makes sense because you're plugging in the real numbers for my business of what our ramp time is, how many reps we have, things like that, and what you've done with very similar companies. And there's some people that are going to look at that and say, you're just making this up and there's no way for me to prove that. And so I think you want to lower their guard down and almost like bring up that objection before you even get there and say, hey, Armand, you know, something that I do with customers in this situation that, that tends to work is try to build out a business case together. And so typically how that works is, you know, we can go through some of the specifics for your business based on what you told me about the pain you have around onboarding. We can plug this into a calculator. I'll give you access. You don't even need to tell me. You can play around with it after the call to your own. You can make a copy of it. I don't even need to see it. But what that typically does is helps us to build the case to your CFO, Nick, as to what type of value that you're going to get from an investment in Gong. Like, is that something that you'd be open to? And if they say, I don't want to do that, you're just kind of like selling me the dream, then cool. You can use other ways to have that conversation. But I think you want to lower their defenses as much as you can before, handle that objection, and see if they're willing to collaborate with you on the dock together. Well, what you're doing that's extremely smart there is you're using their actual numbers and their actual data. You're not just saying, you know, typically for companies in your space, here's the average ramp time, so we're going to plug that in, and here's how we improve it. You're actually having a conversation about, okay, like, how much do you think we could affect this? How much is your average sales price? And when you plug in their numbers and they co-create it with you, they actually feel comfortable going to the CFO and saying, hey, like, Here's what I put together. One thing that I've been doing with the ROI calculators I sell with is I sometimes plug in like a worst case scenario where it's like, you do the, all right, this is your numbers. This is like, if we did a pretty good job. And then I'm like, here's if we didn't do as good of a job. And of course the result is still like a pretty good one for them. But you're like, hey, even if this isn't an A plus, even if Gong is a B plus for you, you're still coming on top with a, a win. Tom, you put a lot of stuff in the prep document about objection handling and I'd be remiss to not ask you about some of your thoughts around that because I know it's something that's top of mind recently. Yeah, for sure. I think objections are something that most sales reps, especially early in their career, shy away from. It's scary. It's intimidating. You're going to bring up price or my competitor or whatever it may be. But in most cases, it's a good thing, right? You want to embrace that as Ryan Holiday, who's an author, says the obstacle is the way, right? You want to go towards that so you can get through it. And so I follow a pretty simple framework for doing that. The first step is you listen, you let them talk as long as humanly possible about what the problem is. You want to make them feel heard. You want to get as much info out of them as possible so you can get to the real objection. You want to acknowledge it. We all know empathy and emotional intelligence are massively important. So you want to say things like, I hear you. What it sounds like is X. I totally get that. Even I'm glad you're bringing this up, Nick, because most real customers actually have this same due diligence process, right? So I'm glad we're having this conversation. The third piece is you want to get to the actual root cause. If Nick says you're too expensive, well, that might mean he doesn't see the value. It might mean he doesn't have budget. It might mean he's just trying to rake you over the coals for a good deal. So you want to get to the root cause of that by being naturally curious and trying to get to what is the actual objection that we're working with here. And then you want to actually respond. And so you know, not reactively. It's not emotional. The difference between a response and a reaction is that it's thoughtful. 
and it's problem solving and you're trying to actually work together with the prospect on that. And then the last piece is once you've actually handled the objection or you think you have, I would ask them, I'd say, hey, Nick, what other unaddressed concerns do you have around price? And if he brings something else up, then you need to go back in there and you need to kind of dig out more with them. And maybe this happens over multiple calls. But if you ask that and he says, Tom, really appreciate it. That actually makes total sense. I see the value here. Let's move forward. You don't want to linger longer at that table than you need to and open up a whole new can of worms once you've actually handled the objection. So that's typically how I think about it. So Tom, you've mentioned this one a couple times of gong is too expensive. So let's say I hit you with, you know, at the end of the discovery or while I'm multi-threading, whatever it is, somewhere in my deal cycle, I say, Tom, I really like what you have to offer, but I just feel like gong is a little bit too expensive. How do you start to unpack that objection? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, Armand, that I totally hear you on that. Uh, I'm curious where something like that's coming from. Typically where, when I have these conversations, usually that means like one of three things. Usually I may not have done a good enough job highlighting the value of Gong. It's possible this could be like an actual budget, you know, dollars and cents issue. Or sometimes it's just, hey, I want to get the best deal possible, but I am interested in Gong. I'm just curious, like, would you bucket yourself into, into any of those three? Yeah, I think it's a good call out. The original budget this year didn't include, shocker, didn't include conversation intelligence software. And I I really like what you guys have, but to spend, I don't know, 50 or 70K on conversation intelligence software that was unbudgeted is just like a little bit scary for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. How do other purchases typically happen when things aren't budgeted for? Like, do you ever go about throughout the year buying other technologies that solve problems that, that weren't originally in the new year budget? Yeah. And typically when that happens is there needs to be um, like a business case that is made to our CFO or our controller. I mean, that they would want to jump on a call with you and rake you over calls on pricing as well at some point. Okay. Got you. Well, I think before we would get to that stage, like I'd want to feel comfortable. It sounds like we've gotten to a level of business pain where you've told me about, you know, some of the challenges that you're having around onboarding and, and hiring. And it seems like from what we see with, with typical customers and, and in your case, like you know, if we could reduce the onboarding time by two months per rep, you have a hundred new reps and based on their quota, it looks like they're going to you know, bring in about a hundred K per month. If that's the case, do you feel like we have an opportunity to, to build a business case together or, or are we maybe at the stage where you haven't seen enough value and we should continue to kind of peel back the onion and explore that further together? By the way, folks, that wasn't rehearsed. We just threw Tom on the spot. <laughs> I didn't know we were, we were role playing here. <laughs> Neither did I, but you rolled into it. It was great. And what you did is you heard me out. And instead of trying to force a business case down my throat, you just asked me, hey, when other things weren't budgeted in the past, how'd you do it? And you made me show you the process. And then you got agreement that you and I already want to buy, but we already want to get gong together. And then you got me on the same side of the table. So really good work, man. I think that's a good way to end things. Nick, it's time for the final question. What do we got? Beautiful, beautiful. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. We got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We have talked about a ton of really great things salespeople should be doing, but now we got to flip it on its head and ask about a shouldn't. So the last question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it's hurting them more than it helps? For me, it's all about your level of focus and task switching how you structure your day is how you're going to structure your career. And so what I mean by that more tactically is find out what the hot zones are for you in your brain. For me, that's first thing in the morning. So 
I'm not spending time in the early morning, you know, scanning through email, scanning through Slack, doing Salesforce administrative tasks. That's when I'm prospecting. That's when I'm pushing deals forward. That's when I'm trying to have good demo calls or discovery calls with clients. And then I'm spending the afternoon if I need to have an internal meeting, if I need to have a Slack or an email. And I see way too many reps let other people dictate what their days look like. When at the end of the day, you have to have complete ownership over how much you sell and whether you're going to get to President's Club. And so you need to control your calendar and, and every hour that exists on that every single day. Brilliant. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap from Armand and myself coming up soon. Cheers. This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by SalesLoft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we missed. And we partnered with SalesLoft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Tom Alamo include number one, prep your champion when you are re-engaging closed loss opportunities. Don't just send them in blind when their executive sponsor has already rejected you. Explain where you lost in the past and where they can help you. Number two, when you're sending prospecting emails, please keep those emails light. Fewer links, fewer bolds, fewer bullets. It should be mostly plain text. Number three, stop Overcomplicating your CTAs. Don't get me wrong, I love Chris Voss, but I see, are you horribly, horrendously opposed, or would it be the worst idea to be horribly opposed? Just keep it a light, low friction CTA. And then lastly, number four, when you're unpacking the objection, this is too expensive. First, try to bucket it into the different reasons something can be too expensive to isolate the objection first. All right, Nick, how can people help us out here? So we were introduced to Tom by a colleague of his. And we occasionally hear that people get introduced to 30 Minutes to President's Club by their colleagues. And so if you're the type of person who's saying, hey, you know what? This show ain't horribly, utterly, terribly half bad. I bet my team would get some value out of this. It would warm my cold little heart if you would share this episode with one of your teammates. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? 
Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes.